One of the things that we tend not to talk about that often on Navarra Media is religion. That's weird because we talk about literally everything else. And I think that in part that's because we've absorbed what you might describe as a liberal take on religion. We like freedom of conscience, we like toleration, and if there's a formal separation between church and state, then that's just dandy. And there's a lot to be said for that. But if you then back off from the question of belief entirely, you're also abdicating some really key discussions about what are the values that we should share as a society? How much does it matter that there's consensus around issues like abortion and divorce? And is faith in itself, in something that you can't see, you can't feel, you can't touch, is that a force for good or a force for ill? With me to discuss this and more is my colleague and Navarra Media co-founder, Aaron Bistani. And just a heads up, we're going to be mostly focused on the Abrahamic religions today, that's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, because that's what we both know the most about. But if you have any recommendations for people who'd be really interesting guests on Hinduism or Buddhism, please let us know in the comments. So Aaron, I've known you for a really, really long time. And it seems to me that it's only been within the last couple of years that you've started talking about having a personal faith. Has anything changed or was there actually a turning point? Um, well, I do have a personal faith, but I'm often very bad at it. I mean, that's the first caveat. If somebody's watching this and they think, well, you haven't been to mass for several months, although in my defense, we've got a, a newborn baby. Um, I'm not as good as I should be. It's something I'd like to be better at. But yeah, I was... Um, I was baptized and had my first Holy Communion and confirmed and all that um, a couple of years ago. I then married my wife in a Catholic ceremony. You were kind enough to join us. So definitely something shifted. I mean, we can talk about the broader sort of politics of religion um, and what is the role of religion and politics. Personally speaking, I think I've always felt that my politics were driven by a certain set of values. And I didn't really understand that until I got older. My mum was a Catholic. The reason why I wasn't baptized as a child is because my father, he wasn't a practicing Muslim, but he was a Muslim. You know, like many Iranian Muslims in the UK, he had a, you know, had a penchant for gambling, <laughs> uh, vodka and uh, bacon. So not a particularly good Muslim, but I've he... never known anyone who likes Johnny Walker Black Label more than Muslims. I'm just putting it out there. No, it's crazy. Like... Um, uh, so he was a Muslim, my mum was a Catholic. So it was kind of like, you know, whatever. Uh, I wasn't going to be circumcised and I wasn't going to be baptized, you know, let him make his own mind up. And in spite of that, I still had a sort of a, an inherent politics, which was actually driven by religion. I didn't realize it. I was very pious, as, as, as young people generally can be, right? Very pious, very self-righteous. This is right. This is wrong. You know, I, I had a, a sense of right and wrong. And actually on reflection, that came from my mum, and that was her background. And I didn't really realize it. Um, and in terms of the role of religion for me personally, I have to say, going back to it um, after the various ceremonies I've fulfilled and whatnot, the gospels are an incredibly powerful way to live your life. You don't need to, you don't need to believe in it. I mean, faith obviously helps, but actually, the idea of repentance, forgiveness, asking for forgiveness, loving your enemies, is transformative. If I ever feel like crap, I pray for forgiveness and I forgive the people who've done me wrong. And I always feel better, very, very quickly. Um, and I think the world that we live in of, of culture and personal injury um, 
actually is at odds with some of those ideas of forgiving people and asking for forgiveness. But what changed in terms of that latent sense of being motivated by a religious value, then being turned into a much more active faith, which is part of your public identity, as well as perhaps being privately held beliefs? Well, in order to have a Catholic wedding with my wife, I had to be a Catholic, first of all. I mean, you have to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's. Um, but it is a very serious, you know, Catholic marriage is a very serious thing. No, it's a sacrament. Precisely. I mean, but you know, even legally speaking, um, if I or procedurally speaking, I, I can't be married in the Catholic Church again. You know, if we get divorced, I cannot get married as a Catholic again. It's a very serious thing, and it really was impressed on me. You're entering into this incredible institution of obligation, duty. You have to look after one another. You have to make the world a better place. Um, that's really incumbent on you. And I, I just, I found that really powerful. And I have to say, and again, we'll talk about this over the next hour and a half, Ash, and I can't wait to talk about some of these big issues. I, I have to say it is, a, it is a remarkable corrective to some of the values that we, we have in, in secular society. There's nothing wrong with secular society, but I think a secular society where capitalism is rampant, where all that mon matters is money and profit, and where people's interests come second... Actually, once you start to encounter up close and personal some of the values, beliefs, institutions of something like Catholicism, which has many downsides, many problems, we'll talk about that too, but it still is a different world. It's a different way of doing things, a different way of engaging with life and other people. And I, I found that very powerful, very moving. One of the things that you said just a little bit ago was having a very powerful sense of right and wrong growing up and not realizing until you got a bit older that that was drawn on... Uh, it was drawing on the Catholicism of your mother. Now, there'll be lots of people watching who are atheists or agnostic, didn't grow up with faith in their lives. You'd say, well, when I was young, when I was a child, I also remember having that really, really powerful sense of right and wrong. So my partner, who you know isn't a religious man at all, but one of the things that his mum will say if you talk to her is that he's always had a really strong sense of right and wrong. And that's, of course, gone into developing his politics and his sense of purpose in the world. So would you say that there is a difference between the way in which you were thinking of right and wrong um, being derived from your mum's religion versus the way someone who is thinking about right and wrong would uh, frame it, the issues they'd be drawn to if they were coming from a much more secular background? Well, look, secularism is a very new thing. And again, I have no problem with secularism. I like secularism. When it comes to politics, I think there should be a, a distinction between church and state. I have a problem with political figures involving themselves in, in party political, especially issues. We'll talk about that too. Whether that's Justin Welby, whether that's chief rabbis, I don't think they should be doing it. You know, I think the context there is somebody like, you know, the Pope in Italy, um, 60, 70 years ago saying that abortion or divorce is bad. You should not be a figure of political authority thinking that you have a greater voice than, you know, uh, the average member of the public in that respect. It's one person, one vote. But um, on the question of right and wrong, secularism is, like I say, very new. And I think even somebody like Joe, I don't know Joe, it'd be good to talk to him and sit uh, with him and, and discuss these issues. But, you know, many of the cultural cornerstones, foundations, pillars on which he relies intellectually will be from those traditions. Not just Christianity, Judaism, Greco-Roman tradition. You know, that is the history that we stand upon. As a species, we're 300,000 years old. That tradition, the Greco-Roman and, and, and Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition, that's only two and a half thousand years. So clearly people had a sense of right and wrong before these things were around. But I think for us, that is the culture from which we emerge. And I do think 
if you look forward like 50, 60, 70 years, I do think people will look at the period, say, since the mid-1990s to basically now as a very strange moment where they'll be like, wow, large numbers of people didn't believe in anything. And they were told it was good not to believe in anything. And actually, they were saying this is the, the foundation of our society is not to believe in anything. Um, and I think that's very unusual in human history. And I think we're, we're coming to the end, frankly, of a, of a distinct cultural moment where that was the case. Did you ever have growing up a kind of Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Bill Maher phase of, you know, crusading new atheism? No, I never. It is strange, isn't it? Because, you know, my dad's Iranian. Obviously, Iran had the, the Islamic revolution. So and you have lots of people of Iranian heritage sort of pushing back against that. You know, their 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 grandparents are called Hussein, Ali, Mamad, Mariam. But they think they're like Neo-Zarustians, you know, it's like literally, bro, that's not your that's not your history. That's not your heritage, but whatever. Um, but that wasn't the case for me. Um, and again, going back to, like I say, my, my sort of personal background. Why do I have the politics I have? Actually, it's quite obvious now in retrospect. Quite self-righteous Catholic mother who knew right from wrong. Um, had quite an instinctive revulsion of, of obscene wealth while also being a working class Tory. I mean, that's probably why I'm quite comfortable with contradiction and complexity with people. And then my dad, of course, was Iranian. He'd be watching, you know, politicians on TV say this or that. He said, they're all full of shit. Western foreign policy is a crock of fucking shit. Um, excuse my French. That was that was the kind of language he would use. And so I look at my own politics, anti-imperialism, egalitarian, values-driven. Wow, okay. Well, I, I know where I got it from. So this idea that I have the politics I do because I read, I read some Marx. Not at all. Marx later on was a very powerful analytic framework to understand the society we live in, capitalism. But the other stuff actually comes from uh, you know a very, very different sort of slipstream. See, because I had a new atheism phase. Uh -huh. I was maybe about you know, between 16 and 18. And I think that's often a period in which, you know, teenagers, you know, you start doing a little bit of A-level philosophy, you start engaging with some of these texts, you read The God Delusion. And it's very, very appealing because it is a very self-righteous way of looking at the question of belief, ironically. Mm. And so I remember reading The God Delusion and kind of coming down to my mom at the table and saying, well, here are all these inconsistencies in what you believe. And she was like, yes, belief is contradictory. That's the purpose of faith. The idea is that reason and rationality can only take you so far. And then you make the leap or you don't. And at that age, that was a horrendously unsatisfying thing to hear because, you know, you're a teenager and you want to have the debate and you want to feel like you've, you know, destroyed religion forever. And then I got a bit older and I had to learn to accept complexity and contradiction in life. I'm talking about the material world before we even encountered the divine. Um, and I realized that there was a hollowness and an incuriosity and even an ignorance about that particular kind of new atheism. And I think we are not so insulated from the irrationality of belief as we'd like to think we are, regardless of whether you're someone who has a faith or someone who doesn't have a faith. There was a complete certainty amongst much of the new atheist movement that invading Afghanistan and Iraq was a good thing to do. There was an absolute certainty that 
Islamism as a political force had to be defeated militarily. There was an absolute certainty in the superiority of Western liberal values, even if that meant indiscriminate bombing, rendition and torture. Now, these are certainties which now, a couple of decades on, you look back on as being completely unreasonable, as, as lacking an evidential basis. So I think that there is a connection between every system of thinking about God's existence or non-existence and politics. And politics is about belief. Politics is about making, I think, a certain irrational leap sometimes into, well, I think this thing because I really do. You can draw on evidence, right? You can put together well-reasoned arguments, but ultimately there's always going to be a bit of that jump. As well, like let's talk about the role of drugs, you know? Like I think I was 19, I took mushrooms the first time and I was, you know, so I, I had a sense of right or wrong with regards to say, ethics or moral philosophy. But then you, I, did, I remember doing mushrooms at 19. And by the way, they were perfectly legal back then, uh, as long as they were fresh. You know, they'd been freshly picked. So I remember in Bournemouth, you know, somebody got them from God knows where, maybe the New Forest. And uh, some friends and I took a bunch of them. Maybe we had some other stuff as well. <laughs> and um, it, something clicked. Something absolutely clicked. I was like, yep. There's something more to this. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not saying, oh, we should all sort of have some hippy-dippy transcendentalism based on taking drugs. I'm not suggesting that. But it just <clears throat> confirmed, and this is very powerful, I think, to a young mind at 19, how trivial lots of th things that people are obsessed with actually are. Most material, look, they're just things, material possessions. That I like them, okay? We all like them, you know? But they're just things. Some things are more important than, like, objects. And uh, so that was a that was a powerful thing for me, a powerful moment. And I think, and again, maybe look, it could be a genetic disposition or whatever, and how I respond to a certain kind of stimulant. But it kind of confirmed that that belief and that idea of of the divine. And regarding the new atheists, there's a great line: "We all believe in a higher power. It's just some of us are honest about it." <laughs> and I think that's the case with the new atheists. You know, they're just not they're not being honest about their own convictions. Um, and I also find this alliance of a fervent belief with free market capitalism and atheism, perhaps one of the most toxic sort of political imaginaries possible. If you were, you know, atheist and you, uh, you know, you you have you believe in a humanist political culture, you want to end global poverty, you know, you want to, you know, elevate reason as like the the sort of the the, the principal foundation on how we construct society. Great. These people don't believe that most of them, right? They're like, no, God doesn't exist. Muslims are bad. And by the way, like that really disgustingly ugly retail park just around the corner from your house is like the optimal allocation of resources in human society. And that matters far more than anything else. Well, okay, you go to the Duomo in Florence or you go to the Hagia Sophia and then you go to that retail park and you tell me what moves people more or is going to inspire them to do things more or makes them feel better about themselves because it ain't, you know, the retail park with PC World and Curry's. So, you know, there's, there's, there's more to life than this stuff. And I, I think fundamentally, a lot of the new atheists don't really understand the gravity of the commitments they, they're adhering to, especially when we look at that interface of capitalism, free market, further with atheism. Well, let's talk about the big man, the prophet, the bearded one, Karl Marx for a second, because he's obviously a hugely influential thinker for both of our politics. And I think that his... Um, oft quoted religion as the opiate of the masses is one of the single most misunderstood lines in the entirety of political philosophy. Because when Marx says religion is the opiate of the masses, he's not saying that in a way which is 
just about expressing disdain, saying, oh, look at you, you're all so stupid, you need this opiate. He's saying it is the sigh of an oppressed creature, it is the heart in a heartless world. He's saying that what religion does is that it is an expression of all of our longings for dignity, for permanence, for being truly valued as human beings that capitalism strips away from us. But, and this is why he draws a distinction between his communism and his socialism versus the kind of you know Christian socialism, which was around in the 19th century, is that he says, in order to criticize society and see things as they truly are, you first have to criticize religion. And that's not merely because he's saying, well, oh, these are inconsistent arguments and oh, the problem of evil and oh, why does there have to be an intelligent designer if we've ended up with this you know, rich and you know, varied and complex world? He's saying, no, 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 no. The problem is that religion is all about what you can't see. It's all about what you can't touch. It's all about what's not here. It's all about the realm of ideas. It's airy-fairy and it's got nothing to do with how societies change. In order to understand society, you have to look at the history of class struggle. You have to look at material conditions. And if you want to become a political subject, either as an individual or collectively, that's capable of transforming society, he says that man has to become his own son. He cannot worship the sun god over there. He has to orbit around himself. And that is, I think, one of the most powerful criticisms of religion that I've ever read, because it's not about whether or not the Bible, the Quran, the Torah, whether these are internally coherent texts. It's about going, how do you properly understand society? It's about ridding yourself of an attachment to idealism and becoming a properly thorough materialist. As someone who has read a lot of Marx and, you know, forgotten more Marx than I will ever Me? engage with, you. No. Yes. I have. There are people actually there are people out there who I haven't read Okay, more than Marx. me. More than me. Okay. I've read more a fair bit of Marx. Right. Um, how have you engaged with Marx's critique of religion and how have you integrated it into your own political understanding? It's a great question. Louis Althusser had a line about uh, who famously strangled his wife. Oh my God. No, a very strange man. I'm not suggesting he's a good guy, but this is a, it was a good line about Marx. He said Marx was like Thales. Thales, you know, discovered a new continent of human thought, which is mathematics. Um, is that even true? I don't know. That's what Althusser says. Uh, but it's a good line. And he says Karl Marx has something quite similar with um, historical materialism. You know, it's a new continent of human thought. Doesn't mean he's right about everything. We have to explore its contours, you know, a bit like Columbus or Leif Erikson discovering discovering the Western Hemisphere, the Americas, you know, then people have to map it out and whatnot. So I, I think that's probably right. Um, and what's really interesting actually is that people apply materialist understanding uh, of this stuff to religion. So there's some great work out there about the rise, for instance, of Christianity in the Roman Empire uh, from the perspective of demographic models. Super interesting. So a materialist um, investigation of how come the Roman Empire, first century AD, this extraordinary empire, Rome probably has a population of a million people at that time. No European city, we think, gets back to that level until London in the 17th, 18th century, we think. Um, could be wrong. You know, maybe that's being racist. Maybe you know Istanbul was bigger, but we think. So this is clearly in, in large part a big culmination, certainly in Western Europe, of, of civilization for a long time. How do you go from there to the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, although we can argue if that happened or not, but clearly something big happens. 
and the adoption of Christianity by this empire by about the fourth century. Wow, how does that happen? That's precisely the inversion that's talked about in the Bible, right? You know, the meek shall inherit the earth, um, and you know, the, the powerful should be shall be you know um, brought down, and you know, the the sword shall become a plow, share all this stuff. Um, it almost seems like it's you know, there's a bit of predi prediction going on there, and. Where it gets interest, interesting is people say, well, actually, um, Christians had high birth rates uh, because there were these two major plagues, major plagues, um, which is the principal reason really for the collapse of the Roman Empire. Also, the, 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 the principal reason why the Persians succumbed to Muslim conquest in the seventh century. These two major plagues demographically destroy these two superpowers. It's the Antonine Plague. Antonine and the Plague of Justinian. Yeah, I think that was a bit... Later, wasn't it? Yeah. The plague of Justinian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think Antonine Plague, oh, we've got first, first, second century, something like that. Uh, End of the first Antonine century. Antonine Plague, that precedes the crisis of the fourth century, I think. I'm getting all of this from Mike Duncan's wonderful History oh. of Rome podcast, which is excellent. Okay. And if you want to learn about the Christianization of the Roman Empire, it's oh, very definitely good. worth listening to. Very good. Um, so you have these two massive plagues and obviously it's permanently at war with um, what was called the Sasanian Empire at the time and they exhaust each other. Um, Rome has its own problems and then obviously Arabs to take over Iran, destroy what was at that point the Sasanian Empire. Um, so th these plagues, this idea of pathogens um, having you know world-shaping consequences, that's not new. That didn't start in 2020. Um, but what he says is actually that Christians responded to these plagues in a much better way because of an ethos of care. Um, you had hospitals. Where does the cultural meme of walking amongst the sick, healing them, where does that come from? It comes from those plagues. The early Christians had the bravery to care for other people, whereas pagans didn't. Pagans fled to the, you know, the wealthy Roman elite left the city. The Christians stayed and tended to the sick. I mean, wow, that's going to win you lots of political capital, isn't it? If you think about it, right? Um, so they have, like I say, high birth rates. What was interesting is that um, women who were Christians would subsequently shape the, the religion of the family. So if a woman converted to Christianity, so would the husband and the children would adopt the faith. And so really from the first century where you have about a thousand, you know, a thousand followers of, of this, what was at this point like a Jewish sect, how do you go from that to this, you know, imperial faith there you go. You know, this this incredible demographics. Pagans have lower birth rates, uh, the, the point about the plagues and women driving that transition. So... You that, also had some really doomed attempts by Roman emperors to stamp out Christianity. And I'm wondering here if it was some people Diocletian that, that some I'm thinking of. Some people claim that's overstated. Some people claim that's like Christian propaganda. Well, the the thing that I'm it saying is that, is, is, is that it's quite it's quite late in the game. Yeah. So I think it may have been um, around the time of Diocletian, where you've got an attempt to sort of repaganize um, Rome, but by that time it's no longer the case that Christianity is just a religion of the poor. It is also a religion of the merchant class. It is also a religion of the aristocracy. Yeah. So an attempt to say, okay, we're not going to have any of this anymore, is just you know, the, the stable door is wide open. The horse is already running across the fields. But it also intellectually meets the needs of people, mm. right? You're having, you're having plagues. You're having a very difficult time. Uh, you're seeing political economic decline, if not collapse, um, for, for the Western Roman Empire. 
all of a sudden there's this new faith which is saying, well, actually, this life isn't what you know really matters. There's a world beyond this one when you die. And all of a sudden that becomes incredibly alluring. Whereas, you know, first century AD, you know, when you've got political economic expansion, where you've not got any plagues, where the Roman Empire looks this incredibly powerful, assertive political entity, then of course, yeah, like hedonism or Greek philosophy, stoicism, like that's makes sense, right? But when life gets really hard, a faith with an eschatology, like a world beyond this one, all of a sudden has like a big, that has a big sort of USP, right? It's a big mm. selling point, which perhaps people cared about less. So in a world of chaos, volatility, as we can talk about right in the 21st century, people are pulled towards something like a, a monotheistic faith. So this is all going back to your question of um, Marx. And the reason why I say this is these kinds of conversations, a materialist explanation about the growth and adoption of Christianity in Western Rome, uh, that for me is the is the great integration of these two things where you can talk about this as not just a, a moral philosophy, but also a sociological phenomenon. Why have people adopted these faiths en masse? Clearly it was appealing to something in human nature, some impulse, some need. Um, and that's a, a reasonable, sensible way to carry on the conversation. Finally, on, on Marx, you know, when Marx talks about this stuff, he is not just in the Enlightenment tradition, he's leading the Enlightenment tradition. And it's very comfortable and convenient for Western liberals to go, Marx, horrible man, orthodox. No, this tradition you claim to uphold, defend, be a part of, so sacred, he was at the cutting edge of it, right? You know, you've also got Diderot, man should be free when the last king is hanged with the entrails of the last priest, you know, a bit more hardcore. Uh, but, but this idea of political and ecclesiastical power going hand in hand uh, and actually there being an illusory uh, aspect to that is, is big in the Enlightenment. And like you've said, Marx was front and centre of it. I mean, thinking about the way in which revolutionaries have interacted with religion, one of the big mistakes of the French Revolution was to try and take over religion and replace what had been Catholicism with a religion of a revolutionary state. So you've got the cult of the divine being, you've got Robespierre who tries to lead a sort of cult of virtue, they try and worship reason for a bit, they make all of the priests swear this kind of oath of allegiance to the revolutionary government, some of course then refuse, which means you're in the um, disadvantageous position of having to kill some priests, very unpopular. It's one of the uh, contributing reasons to the uprising in the Vendée. So it means that you've got all of this sort of civil unrest, which makes it harder for the revolutionary government in Paris to hold on to things. Um, looking back on the French Revolution, many of the leading anti-clerical lights were in Paris, very, very radical. Camille Desmoulins, for instance. Do you think that it was a classic case of, of urban intellectual revolutionaries not understanding what was important to the rest of the country and trying to push change too far. I mean, if you were part of a French revolutionary government in, you know, the 1780s, would you say, lads, leave religion alone? You're not going to win this one. You know, we would call it the 1789 French reform. <laughs> Uh, you know, are you being too revolutionary? Or I suppose you're saying, you know, in, in, in questions of political revolution, does that also mean a complete social, you know, um, upheaval? Uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, look at another revolution, which is in a way 
Could you call it more successful? I mean, look, the French Revolution completely recasts Western history. Uh, but if you look at another revolution, more recently, the Iranian Revolution. Also, the church never fully gets its power back in no, France. Never. No, no, no. Well, look, they, they try and bring back kings and all this stuff in France, which kind of like, they're kind of LARPing, right? You know, with like um, Louis Napoleon, Napoleon III, blah, 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 blah. Kind of doesn't work. And they're like, okay, we kind of. And look, they're a republic today. So there was that great quote from Zhu Enlai, probably not true. Um, what do you think of the French Revolution? Too soon to tell. Ha, 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 ha. I think there's, that's partly true. Um, but I think as well, yeah, I think there probably would have been like small C conservative Aaron. If I was a, Jacques, uh, a Jacobin or a sans-culotte, would I have been a sans-culotte? Probably, probably. But the sans-culotte were hardcore, man. Yeah, no, they, they were like, kill them priests. No, I know. But I'm just thinking my, my class dates, I probably would have, I wouldn't have been like a lawyer, right? Um, so yeah, I probably would have been like, guys, let's just chill on this a bit. We need a coalition. But this is what Mao got right. You know, we're talking about what revolutions learn from one another. This is what Mao got right. Mao understood that you can't have a successful revolution without um, the rural peasantry. You know, the idea of a of a of an elite vanguard of the proletariat, urban intelligentsia. The idea that is a proper revolution. He was like, "That's nonsense." Um, I don't know who talks about this, but you know, each the idea of each revolution iteratively learning from the last. So you know, Lenin learns from the Paris Commune. Mao learns from Lenin. Again, I mean, is there truth to that? Well, Lenin certainly learns from the Paris Commune. Uh, and clearly Mao has a different relationship to these questions than than others. I mean, but then in a country like the UK, for instance, today, I know it's strange to talk about revolution in the context of the UK, but or the US or even just much of the world, frankly, um, what, I think 2% of, less than less than 2% actually, um, it's less than 1% in the U US of the labor market is working in agriculture. So, you know, these are interesting historical questions, but you know how how relevant they are are they to today? You know. Well, I think perhaps the relevance to today is when we're thinking about religion and we're thinking about its relationship to um, movements for radical social and economic change. It's to what extent do you consider religion an object of interrogation, um, a site of struggle? Is it a a force in society that you want to contest or is it a force in society that you want to engage with and make use of? I mean, so far we've talked about revolutionary movements coming into conflict with religion. We've not talked about revolutionary movements which have been expressed through religion. Mm. Um, one of the key examples of this is of course, liberation theology, which emerges in the 1970s in South America. Um, you're thinking about theologians such as Leonardo Boff, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez from Peru. And two big things lead to the emergence of liberation theology. One is you've got a huge wave of impoverishment of the rural working class and the rural farming class. And this is also to do with marketization, right? The forces of capitalism ravaging Latin America. And the second thing is the emergence of American-backed, right-wing, brutal dictatorships. So along comes liberation theology, and it tries to integrate Marxism with Catholicism. The argument is that God is on the side of the poor and the oppressed, that when the poor rise up against their oppressor, it is God's will, and that there is a duty for Catholics to be on the side of the poor. Right, so it's an intensely political kind of theology, and it's it's got an emphasis on the here and now. It's no good just waiting for the afterlife. 
have to liberate people in the here and now. Um, priests were excommunicated. There were edicts against liberation theology issued by uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger, who then of course became Pope Benedict, um, was was a leading anti-liberation theology light within the Vatican. And that's an example of seeing, rather than an opposition between religion itself, belief in God itself, and revolution, you see how one is being expressed through the other. I mean, were you ever interested by liberation theology within the journey of your own Catholicism? In terms of Catholicism, you know, th this question of, you know, um, God or Caesar, and, and who do you sort of owe your, your who, who has exercises greater political authority in your life? Of course, this is a live question in many other faiths. You know, you look at Islam, for instance, um, and it goes back to the very heart of, of Christianity. Um, you look at, for instance, the, uh, the Epistle of James in the New Testament, James the Just, who's referred to by various figures as Jesus's brother. He could be a brother, he could be a cousin, he could just be a very- A comrade. A, a comrade. Th th there's a possibility that he was a biological brother or a cousin. There's a possibility, which is super fascinating. So basically, James the Just is the, is the top boy of this, this Messianic Jewish sect, which is what um, obviously Christianity was. And you know his writings, <clears throat> as as we receive them in the New Testament, are extraordinary. You know he 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 sounds like Mao, like the rhetoric sounds like a twentieth century, um, uh, you know, furious, vengeful, uh, you know, frank, frankly, you know, maybe socialist despot. I mean, maybe should I should I read some to you? Yeah, go on. So this is from the book of James. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and they will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen! The wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which kept you kept back by fraud, cry out! And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. And there's more. This is a bit further on. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up and the rich in being brought low because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. So you've got somebody who really sounds like a sort of first century Bernie Sanders. Quite violent language, like explicitly violent language. People are like, oh, it's harder for you know, a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. No, he's like, he's talking about like their riches and their bodies rotting and withering away. Um, and, and this was somebody who was, you know, a very central figure in early Christianity. And there has been that tension over time of, of what this message is about. Is it an earthly one or is it one for the hereafter or is it both? You know, I, I think it's obviously both. Um, and if you go into the Old Testament, Book of Isaiah and whatnot, it is replete with effectively um, labor regulations, labor laws, pay people on time. Um, you know, don't ask them to do more when you're not paying them. Uh, obviously, debt jubilees and whatnot. There was a very a highly egalitarian way of running an economy 
which runs throughout uh, much of the Old Testament and is repeated in, in the New Testament, uh, as I've talked about with regards to wealth and and obscene inequality. So, and of course, you know, the money changes in the temple and whatnot. So this is a message that goes right through right through the Bible and is a very obvious and powerful one to me. And again, you know, where does where does Christianity come from? To be clear, I think it's pretty obvious Jesus Christ did exist. There's a great deal of evidence for this, not least because there were also other people like him who were calling themselves the Messiah. You know, uh, first century um, Judea was a place full of people calling themselves the Messiah, using this very you know, um, you know messianic sort of um, revelatory rhetoric. So that's one argument. That's one argument for why he'd be around. There are lots of other people doing it. Why would this be so strange? You know, a radical Jewish sect. Uh, we have you know Josephus, who is a, a historian. We have other other accounts too. So he likely, or almost certainly, did exist. The things he was saying were clearly a challenge to the powerful. I think it's very important to say, as well as being you know very egalitarian, he was Jewish, uh, and there is there is one read on him being really. A, Jewish nationalist is a strong word because obviously nations at that point don't work, but very much, you know, an anti-imperialist um, bent to what he was doing with regards to the occupying forces of the Romans. So, you know, the idea of an anti-imperialist, somebody who wants to, you know, share wealth, somehow being recuperated by the Western Roman Empire um, 400 years later is obviously a strange one, but that captures for me so many of the tensions within, within faith. Who benefits from it? Who's it for? Well, I think... Particularly one of the tensions, if you want to call it that, within Christianity itself is that you've got this profoundly radical, anti-imperialist, anti-exploitation thread, which is running through the Bible. And the church undoubtedly played a huge role in colonialism. So the conquest of the Americas, the deaths of hundreds of millions of people through displacement and disease. Uh, the encomienda system in Latin America, which was kind of like a protection racket. The idea was the Spanish would come along and say, we'll protect you in exchange for your unpaid labor. It was a system of slavery in all but name. And you had quite famously the, uh, uh, I'm going to do some real butchering of Spanish pronunciation, by the way, the Valladolid debates, which were about to what extent can you exploit uh, the indigenous peoples of the Americas? Because are they chattel? Are they slavery? Or do they have souls? And do we want to convert them? Um, one of the outcomes of that was, why not both? Um, so I suppose a kind of Marxist riposte to what you're identifying is like, yes, there's all sorts of you know radical anti-imperialist, anti-exploitation material in the Bible itself, but the history of the church yeah. is not reflective of that at all. So the origin really of the sort of modern slave trade from a European perspective is the idea that people are property. And actually the three the three nation states or the three, you know, the three entities which drive the transatlantic slave trade are Britain. The Dutch Republic, and of course, you know, the, the United States, the original colonies, which are now, are now the United States. And Montesquieu writes at the time that actually he says slavery was once, you know, a thing in the past, but it's coming back. You know, it's coming back in an era of purported progress um, and and liberal ideas. They wouldn't call it liberal ideas, but we now view it as part of the liberal sort of tradition. We're seeing slavery come back. 
And of course, we think that slavery was really bad in the past. And as you go over time, actually, it just gets better and better and better and better. But Montesquieu says that's not true. It sort of disappears in Europe um, or, or uh, diminishes significantly. But now it's clearly now a big part of our economies again. It's becoming a big part of our economies again. And of course, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, it's a huge part of, of economic production. You know, look at British holdings in the West Indies and whatnot. These are, these are economies built around slavery. So you could, of course, say, well, that's because of religion. No, I think actually a stronger argument is to say, well, actually, it's because of liberalism. It's because of liberalism. It's because of the idea that you can treat humans as, as tradable, mark, like marketable commodities. Um, and if you want to look at it that way, then all of a sudden, religion becomes a more, can become a more progressive idea because you're saying, actually, these people aren't property. These people are made by God in God's image. They're capable of God's grace. They can repent, uh, forgive, be forgiven, just like you. And so in a way, actually, you know, all of a sudden, religion seems like a far more progressive set of ideas. The idea of a, a universal brotherhood, sisterhood of humankind, um, that's a very powerful idea. And then, of course, the argument is, and I agree with this, that is transformed into contemporary discussions around human rights. Where do you think human rights come from? Where does the idea of universal humanity, where do you think it comes from? Um, you can make abstract arguments about, you know, a universal capacity for reason, you know, oh, oh, great, we're all homo sapiens, great, you can do some sort of biological essentialism. Yeah, okay, fine. But historically, that idea comes from religion. And when you compare religion to things of, for instance, race science, ideas around race science in the 18th, well, no, 19th century, um, it looks incredibly progressive. Because with race science, that would say this person's brown, this person's white, this person's black. They're fundamentally different. Those, those differences can never be overcome. They can never understand one another. That's it. It's just an essentially different, you know, biological entity, one to the other. And whereas a Christian or a Muslim, any sort of monotheistic universalist faith would say, well, actually, no, they just need to adopt Christianity or Islam and your brothers, your sisters, you're the same. That's, all, that's the only difference. So, you know, okay, you can look at it on the one hand and say, well, this is quite backwards, but actually in a way, I think it's a lot more progressive than the, the sort of race essentialism that we find ourselves immersed in the 21st century. So do you basically hold to the idea that if God didn't exist, we'd have to invent him? Because without some notion of a divine creator to whom we all owe our existence, there isn't actually a basis for universal morality. So it doesn't really matter if God exists or not, it's something that we need to believe in in order to have the kinds of values which are capable of producing civilized human society. Well, I suppose that this is, again, we go back to Marx, right? What comes first? Is it material conditions that give rise to the ideas and the social relations or is it the other way around? I think clearly, clearly there's a strong interconnection between um, a more connected world, um, uh, the ability of different peoples to, to converse with one another, progress, enlightenment, and monotheistic faiths. Uh, that doesn't mean monotheistic faiths are better. You know, I think it's Carl Jaspers who talks about, you know, the axial age. So basically he says, you know, human beings, we come out of hunter-gatherer society, we embrace agriculture. There's this kind of, you know, takes a little while, but then we embrace monotheism, generally speaking. You know, humans stop doing, um, you know, uh, the whole hunter-gatherer thing, you know, about 12, 11, 10,000 years ago. And then you get these organized monotheistic faiths emerging really, okay, fine, with Judaism like four and a half thousand years ago, I guess, something like that. Um, but 
uh, maybe not that long ago, 4,000 years ago, something like that, right? A, a long time ago, 4,000 years ago, it's quite Trumpian, a long time ago, <laughs> you know, a long time ago by the, by the, you know, by in terms of the contemporary imagination. And, and he says, look, the, the, the emergence of these faiths is a response to, you know, fundamentally different bases of society. So, of course, animism and the idea that, you know, animals are something sacred um, is clearly um, intertwined with hunter-gatherer societies. You said that with indigenous cultures in the Americas, you see that with even hunter-gatherer societies that still exist today. But then with the rise of agricultural societies with a surplus, complex social configurations, you have to create far more complex religions and this abstract idea of a creator. And of course, many of the metaphors in these faiths are of agriculture, you know, the shepherd and his sheep, a lamb and its flock, um, gathering um, gathering religious devotees like like wheat. That's That's throughout the Bible. So I think that's an interesting one. You know, does religion make um, a world of human rights and universal humanity possible. Uh, I'm going to be a good Marxist and say it works both ways. You know, it's clearly the development of the material factors of production which allow that, and that development also allows the emergence of these kinds of faiths, makes them possible even. I mean, look, you can't have these kinds of faiths um, emerging as they do without writing. Um, and something like Protestantism, for instance, if we want to be really technologically deterministic, you don't have without the printing press. How can you challenge the authority of the church and the papacy without the printing press? Um, you can't, because before that you have Latin, not many people can read it, um, and they're being preached to by somebody who's a, not just a, a figure of religious authority, but also intellectual authority, because only the, they understand what they're talking about. You can't challenge it. So um, it, it, it's a bit of both, but I would say to people who are sort of secularly minded or, you know, um, part of that new atheist thing, you should really understand that this world we live in, which isn't all bad, you know, it has some good parts to it too, um, which includes the idea that all humans have some fundamental similarity at the heart of their being, which allows them to sympathize with anybody else. You know, that um, broadly speaking is something we inherit from faith. How important is it in society for there to be some kind of uniformity of values and beliefs? For instance, around things like abortion, IVF, gay marriage, mixed religious marriages. How much variety of deeply and sincerely held beliefs can a society tolerate before it starts coming apart? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think to start with, you've said the things that we would agree with, you know, people should be able to broadly believe what they want or practice what they want as long as it doesn't harm other people. I think most people would say that. Um, but there are some things where we do agree, right? So, you know, as a society, we agree that murder is bad, pedophilia is bad, theft is bad. And so where are we looking to draw the line? And you're talking about- There are going to be some people in the comments being theft is very, very good, actually. Yeah, well, of course, in, well, in some contexts, of course it is. You know, that you do those, you know, 13-year-old um, moral questions. Well, if if I was starving, could I steal something? <laughs> of course you can. I, I think, of course you can. Um, okay, you know- uh, We'll stick to the big ones. Murder, paedophilia. Yeah, very easy to say that those are bad, right? Um, so on, on a question like, for instance, abortion or, or divorce, you know, I think actually we're in a relatively good place as a society, which is knock yourself out. You know, do what you want. Um, I think at the same time, though, we should be aware that there are certain um, social externalities to decisions made by people which may be disadvantageous to their kids or whoever. And again, I was raised by my mum, single mum. She did a great job. I wouldn't change it for the world. My dad was around, but, you know, it wasn't changing the nappies and stuff. Uh, similar situation to yourself. I think we turned out okay, Ash. 
Oh, no, except dad wasn't around. Yeah, yeah, no, but you know, like we we had these women in our lives mm. who were bosses, like that's fine. Um, I'm not denigrating that in a way, it's amazing. Like I literally can't do that. I can't imagine how hard it is. Uh, but at the same time, you know, just because somebody says, well, a society which has more of this or less of this has more of these outcomes, fewer of these outcomes. Does that make that person like a bad person to say it, to observe that? I don't think so. I, I like the fact we live in a society where people can get divorced, have abortions. I think that's a good thing. Um, I believe in reproductive autonomy and whatnot. I do worry about like demonizing somebody who disagrees but this is when it's just about them, right? If they're not, if they're not, if they're not, um, if they're not proselytizing, if it's just your personal life, mate, knock yourself out. Do what you want. I mean, look, I I uh, take the Kang and Kodos line, which is abortions for some, miniature American flags for others. Yay! I mean, for me, it's it's actually a question about what level of consensus do you need to protect some of these rights where mm. obviously you're not compelled to exercise those rights even if you're legally granted them. No one's compelling you to divorce. No one's compelling you to have a same-sex marriage. No one's compelling you to get an abortion. But if you have a very well-organized, uh, politically connected religious movement, this is what we've seen in America, those hard-won legal rights to abortion yeah. can very quickly be rolled back. Yeah. And so the point I'm asking is, well, does it actually matter then to agree in a more profound way about the rights that a, a society should have, even if you don't want to exercise that right as a religious person? 100%. Is it important? Of then in, because, because some would say that that is an imposition on a religious person's freedom of conscience to say, well, I should think this way about abortion. Not just, you know, should I have one, but I should think the same way as you, that I should think that a society that has the right to abortion in it is a more civilized society. Some would say that that is too far in terms of an incursion into into the private well, realm of belief. Yeah, I think, I mean, it kind of is. I mean, abortion is the emotional one, but I think like the idea that you have to think something, I mean, how do we, how do you enforce that? How do you police it? Obviously you have to respect the rights of other people to have an abortion and have one in peace uh, is a really important one. And it's not, you say the US, not just the US, right? Look at Israel. In 1948, the founding of Israel, 1% uh, of the Israeli population was Haredim, ultra-Orthodox today. It's a lot more. I think by 2050, it's going to be about a third. You can see in the complexion of the country's politics that it's really moving in a very strange direction. It starts in a strange place, but it's moving in a... Frankly, I think it's going to become a theocracy, the way it's going. A very strange theocracy. Um, and actually, sort of liberal Zionists hold completely different views on a range of issues to Haredim. And we don't talk about it, but it's probably the most polarized society on earth, far more than the US. Nobody really talks about it because, of course, they have this convenient other Palestinians who care that, you know, they can just sort of repeatedly, you know, um, they can take their homes or they can, you know, attack them or, uh, you know, there's this ongoing conflict, which, okay, on October 7th, it went, it went both ways, horrific attack. But primarily speaking, the injuries, the deaths, the dispossession have been going one way since 19. Well, since well, since the 1930s, really, but you know, since let's say since 1948, so <clears throat> that and that is probably the most polarized society on earth. And liberal Jews and Haredim have completely different views on a bunch of things. And is that society going to be healthy and sustainable in the long term? Of course, it's not. Um, you have a similar issue in the United States, in so much as. <clears throat> We're going to talk about this in a moment, I guess. Um, you know, the religious quote unquote shall literally inherit the earth. 
But you have in the US now, I think, you know, birth rates amongst Mormons are like six, seven, eight kids. Religious fundamentalists, very high. And then amongst less religiously minded people, they're much lower. Now, of course, if we go over that, go over that for, say, 100 years, you know, the complexion of the US changes quite remarkably, which gets to the heart of your question. You know, when 65% of a country, 70% of a country, or even higher, like in the UK, supports abortion, then somebody who doesn't support abortion, so what? You know, it's just a minority view. When that's 45, 55, that's quite hard. Um, and I, I agree with you there. It's a, it's a really important life question. That's why, for all the things I'm saying in regards to, you know, religion should play a role in, in, in politics, it's a very good um, way of ameliorating, I think, the more destructive tendencies of capitalism. You clearly need a division of church and state. And by the way, that's why when you had these rabbis calling out Jeremy Corbyn, I said, what's the politics of these people? Why should I care what these people think just because they're rabbis? People say, you're an anti-Semite. No, I would say the same if they were imams or priests. When did this become a thing? So if Justin Welby is making an intervention on uh, the government's immigration policy, you're yeah. like, eh, eh, get out. I don't like it. I, I instinctively don't like it. I, okay, I agree with him. And for people who are like, I agree with him. Woke, and I'm, I've joked about this for years, like woke Welby or whatever, like you know, <laughs> or um, you know, Pope Francis is a bit different because you know the Catholic Church is not it's not a, it's not a state church. Although in Italy, you know, I think it's a similar thing to the COE and and um, and politics here. You know, I, I, I don't like it. Welby was getting involved in, you know, the general election sort of final weeks of 2019, actively criticizing the leader of the opposition. That was really new and really bad. But because the media didn't like Jeremy Corbyn, oh, no big deal. Well, okay, if the country is 40% Muslim and the, the country's most powerful imam attacked a leading politician and tried to influence the outcome of a general election, how would you feel? I'm I'm pretty sure I know how you'd feel. It's just in this instance you don't like the guy who's being attacked. So, you know, I, I, I don't like this 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 involvement of religious figures into politics. In so much as they're using their roles as a platform of political authority. You can say, well, look, as a Christian, I believe about these issues. My faith tells me this. But if you're saying this person should be fired or that person's not legitimate or no. Leave. You, this is not how it works, pal. Nobody voted for you. It's like with the Board of Deputies. You know, the Board of Deputies represent a certain substrate of, of, of British Jewry. However, I just talked about Haredim in this country. You know, the birth rate of Haredi Jews is something like six, seven kids per person, maybe more. Uh, whereas for, you know, British Jews, generally speaking, it's, it's lower than two. So, and Haradim aren't represented by the Board of Deputies. So I get very worried when, like, you have these people in public life saying, I'm a religious community, I'm representing my, you know, my community and my religious values, blah, blah, blah. And then they're, they're then taking on actual politicians who people have actually voted for and who are actually accountable, you know, to the media. Probably too much, right? People camped outside Jeremy Corbyn's house know what his mother-in-law looks like. So, you know, compare that, that level of scrutiny. So I... I have I have the kind of misgivings you have as well, um, and I, like I say, that's why I think it's very important to have this um, this distinction between church and state. Uh, fortunately, I think Britain is actually is quite intriguing. It goes back to something you were saying a, a few moments ago about you know the urban intelligentsia. Actually, London is the most religious part of the UK. Well, of course, because we've got the highest percentage of immigrants yeah. and their descendants who tend to be a lot more religious. I yeah. mean, you know. I, walk around the area where I live in Tottenham, you've got Pentecostal churches, you've got Seventh-day Adventists, you've got uh, Muslims, you've got, you know, you've got religious institutions which are very much catering for the specific um, 
immigrant communities who are living there. And that's one of the things which I really love about London is that if you walk around or, on a, you know, anywhere, anytime between Friday and Sunday, because you've got Friday prayers, you've got, mm. um, you know, Shabbat, you've got, you know, Sunday, um, you can see the ethnic religious complexion of the neighborhood in miniature. There's something so beautiful about that. Mm. I really, really enjoy. There's something which I want to ask you before we come back to this question of demographics. There'll be people watching this who'll go, well, Aaron, you call yourself a Catholic, but you believe in the right to divorce, mm. even if you don't want to divorce your very lovely wife. And I mm. don't think you should because she is the best. Um, you believe in the right for gay people to get married. Yeah. You believe in the right to an abortion. I presume you're quite okay with reproductive technology as well, considering- Which would mean like the pill? No, like IVF. Obviously. Yeah, obviously, of course I am. Right. When you say, the way you, you make it sound like, like babies being born in like little like growth bags or something like well, that, I mean, some sci-fi thing. I mean, maybe that too, but yeah. Like there'll be people who will say, well, if you're a pro-choice Catholic, yeah. if you're a pro-gay rights Catholic, yeah. you're picking and choosing. Yeah. Right now, I call myself a Muslim. I throw both hands up and I say, "Yeah, fucking pick and choose." All right, I pick and choose those beliefs which are coherent with the rest of my political worldview. I do that. There will be many people that say you you shouldn't do that or you can't do that. Yeah, because the point of these religious beliefs is that they're divine and they're eternal, yeah. and you can't subject them to a kind of liberal discernment mm. where you. Pick out the ones which work for you and you leave the ones that don't. Yeah. Where are you on the issue of picking and choosing? Yeah. So, you know, I, the basic sort of answer for me is that you're, when it comes to religion, the, the relationship that matters is the one between you and God. So if I got divorced from my wife, I can honestly say that would be the biggest failure I can imagine in my life. I have failed. I would be heartbroken. Um, it means something to me. You know, we've brought a child into the world. We're married. That's the decision we've made. That doesn't mean I go around judging people. I look at them any less or any differently. Precisely the opposite, in fact. And, you know, there's, um, this is again, you know, you get it throughout the Bible it's about the moat and the beam. Don't look at the tiny speck in the other person's eye when you've got this like giant plank of wood coming out of your own one or or in more sort of contemporary violence. Don't, you know, throw stones from glass houses. So that that's the first point. <clears throat> it's in relation to my personal life. You know, if my wife was pregnant, we had a second child. Um, and she said, should we have an abortion? She would never say that because we want a second child. Um, I, I would be opposed to us having a second child because I'd say, well, look, we're in love, we're married, we're husband and wife, we want a child. I, I, but if somebody else is doing that's their business. That's their business. It's between them and, and their creator. Do I think we should live in a society where people should have access to those choices? Of course I do. I think it's insane not to have those choices. And I think it's insane to think you can construct society on, on religious precepts. Like, because humans are too complicated for that. We are not all going to come from the same faith. Theocracies have invariably failed. So I, I look, it, yes, it's of course, it's replete with contradiction and tension, but that's that's what it means to be, you know, like a, an entity rather than it's like, you know, ethereal essence where everything is correct out there. That's not how the world is. Um, should those things be permitted by law? Of course they should. Of course they should. Uh, and in terms of... Um, your other point, you know, religion should not be about telling people off. That's not the point of religion. Oh, you're a bad person. That's not, that is not the point. Worry about yourself. You know, again, there's some great 
parts of the Bible where they talk about beware of people that pray in public too loudly to draw attention them, to themselves and show how virtuous they are to the world. No, pray in private. Uh, not By the way, I'm not, I'm not suggesting one or the other, but it's an interesting sort of argument. Don't seek to draw attention to yourself and show the world how virtuous you are. And I think that's a big part of it. Like, if you believe in God, if you have faith, don't tell other people how to live their lives. And that's quite, a, that's quite, quite, quite a liberal way of living life. I, I sincerely believe that. If you think that they're doing something which jeopardizes like their soul or their happiness, pray for them. Pray for their happiness, right? Pray they make the right decision for them. It is not your concern. Like these imperatives that you're you're given by your faith are your business. What people do is none of your business. It's between them and their creator. So, so you don't want to spread the good news. You don't. You don't no, consider I, proselytizing. What do you mean by spreading the good news? I th no, I, I would say, no, I don't think anybody should join a faith. Is Catholicism better than this? I don't, that's silly. But what I would say is um, Christianity and central to the idea of Christianity is this idea of forgiveness is the most powerful idea in the world. You don't need to be a Christian to do that. It's the most powerful transformatory thing in the world. If you're angry with somebody, if you're really angry with someone, forgive them. Close your eyes, pray for them, Think about why they've made that decision. Forgive them. And then immediately once you've done that, who have you wronged recently? Egg their house. Well, immediately, exactly. Yeah. And then then call the police and, you know, no. That. <laughs> and then immediately after that, um, think about somebody you've wronged and ask for their forgiveness. And I defy anyone to do that and not feel better after five minutes, right? So if I'm going to proselytize anything, it's that. Uh, and uh, that's sort of like a, that's almost like self-help stuff. But it's true, and it's so at odds with this sort of prevailing culture of like injury. Mm. You know, we're all being done wrong by everybody. Um, you've caused me harm. You've caused me harm. Okay, well, forgive the person. Maybe, maybe you'll feel better for it. Holding on to anger and like, um, again, this is all quite airy fairy sort of self help stuff. But it's true. Holding on to anger and grievance doesn't help you. Doesn't help you. There was this great guy as a church in the US, an evangelical guy. You know, I won't hold that against him. And he had this thing where every time he complained, he had this wrist bracelet and he was having to take it off one hand and put it on the other. He said, that, and then I learned not to complain. Um, and I thought that was quite interesting. Like, I like, I love a whinge, like all men. Okay. Men love to say that women, whinge. men whinge twice as much. I love a good whinge. Um, but at the same time, like, I'm incredibly grateful for what I have, what I've been given. Um, and yeah, I think gratitude and forgiveness are these incredible things. And I will proselytize for that ash. I mean, I, I suppose for me, I recognize that the way in which I live my life, often some of the most valuable aspects of it are secularized versions of what had started out as religious ceremonies. Mm. So I'm thinking, of course, here about getting married. We had an excessively secular wedding. We actually had a civil partnership, which is mm. the most secular one you can get. It was great fun, by the way. It was really fun. Very good. I was so tanked by the end of mm. it. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking about before making the decision to get married is, well, why do it at all? Is it just a party, which is what some people say. They go, look, we've been together a really long time. It's not going to change anything. Want to have a big party, celebrate with everyone. And I think it's perfectly fine if that's what you want to do. For others, it's, you know, it's a sacrament. For others, it's a sort of a legal understanding, which creates a feeling of security, particularly if you want to start a family and have children. Was it going to be for me? And so I was talking to my best friend, who you know, who's Catholic, 
And she said, no, 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 no. Weddings aren't really about you guys as a couple. It's about the community and you're inviting your community in to support you as a couple and to help you be really good to each other. So it's actually about acknowledging your dependence on the people around you mm. rather than your dependence on each other. And that for me was quite game changing. That was the thing which it slotted into my head and I was like, yes, I do want to do this thing. I do want to have a wedding. I do want to get married because if I want to be with this person for life, and I do, I can't do it without the help of my community. So it's a secular version of something which has its origins in something religious. And I guess that brings me back to this question of how much do we need religion in modern society? Is it enough for us to have these sort of inheritances that have religious origins, but we don't actually need God to be there anymore for them to be profoundly meaningful. Well, you know, probably the smartest human being ever, John von Neumann, um, said on balance that probably is a god. So, you know, I'm not I'm not smarter than him. Um, and it goes back to your question of like the new atheists. Like there's there's loads of really smart people who believe, like the idea that you're smarter than these people, you know, and the, the idea that you see this on Twitter all the time, don't you? The idea that it's, you know, it denotes low intelligence if you believe in God or a creator. Uh, yeah. I, so the idea of ritual is hugely important. And again, it's part of our, the loss of the West in the last century. Um, a loss in the value of ritual of community, precisely because we've lost, lost these other things. Now, can you have ritual and community without that? Of course you can. Of course you can. But these are fundamental human needs. And it does feel like modernity, the process of modernity is jettisoning a lot of them and not really replacing them with very much. I mean, there are, you know, there are examples where that hasn't been the case. So like socialism, right? Socialism tried that. Uh, Max Weber, I think, talks about this at the sort of the early 20th century. He talks about, you know, German socialists carrying the red flag. And he was like, this is reminiscent of Christians like carrying the cross. Mm. This is a world beyond the one we know, a different kind of future. And I think that dream of a different kind of world, the one we inhabit, clearly infuses 20th century socialism in often warped ways. Uh, but there's, there's clearly some sort of inheritance there. And like I say, we've been living in a world really since the 1990s, very unique world. I think a world which will be utterly incomprehensible to people in the future, where we say that actually ritual doesn't matter, ideas don't matter, community doesn't matter. Um, the idea that there's more to life than things is silly. You know, I, I, I think we're moving away from that now. And we'll probably talk about this, you know, in, in a bit. You know, we've got to talk about sort of um, the, the political uses and abuses of religion and whatnot. But I, it seems to me that like parts of the West are coming to this weird cultural inflection point where they recognise that other societies, in various ways, are actually doing quite well, not because of religion, but because of there's a, there's a shared bond which people claim to have. They're part of a wider community. Now, if you're an ultra nationalist. You said, well, I'm part of a, a national community. Uh, but the point is, with liberal market capitalism, none, there, it's just the market. You exist as an atomized individual in relation to others through transactions and the price mechanism. And there's nothing more important. And by the way, if you intervene, um, that creates loads of you know, suboptimal transactions and it screws the whole thing up. You can't do it. So I, I, I feel like, yes, we can do those things, ritual, community, without religion. Can we do it with liberal market capitalism? No, 
No, we get asset management, we get outsourcing, we get privatization, we get massive income inequality, which by the way, all of this stuff is just going to fuel a return to the very things we're talking about in a very warped way, a really warped, sadistic way, which is frightening for me, actually. You talked about the way in which, you know, German socialists carrying the red flag had this kind of uh, religious further to it almost. It was like Christians carrying the cross. And I was thinking about that wonderful Stuart Hall essay for a Marxism without guarantees, which is one of my favorite defenses of being a Marxist revisionist ever by the great cultural theorist Stuart Hall. And one of the things that he describes is that there is a certain kind of dogmatism in some aspects of the Marxist tradition. So throughout the 20th and of course now in the 21st century do have these groups of Marxists who get very, very angry if you say that Marx was wrong about something, right? They'll try and warp their observations of the reality around them to what Marx wrote. So then you can say that the great man was right because if he was right, then it means that your politics and the cause you've committed to yourself to has meaning. And what Stuart Hall says is, well, if you think that the world that we live in, you know, well over a hundred years after the, you know, well over 150 years since the publication of the Communist Manifesto is going to resemble everything that he thought was going to happen, then you truly do believe that he's an Old Testament prophet. You believe that this man had Mm. superhuman um, foresight of the future. And of course he couldn't. Right? Maybe he wasn't writing at the late stage of capitalism. Maybe he was writing just as this thing was beginning and it was going to change and it was going to evolve even further. And the reason why I love that essay so much is that it observes the religious dynamics within secular political movements, the urge to see your preferred political philosopher as a prophet, Mm. someone who can predict the future Mm. hundreds of years before, and not as someone who made some really incredible observations of the society that he lived lived in, made some predictions which did come true and a lot which didn't because he was just a human man. Very clever human man, but just a human man. Yeah. Well, I like to look at Marx as really sort of, you know, probably the, the most important figure in the sort of canon of Western political economy. Um, yeah, no, but that's that's the that's the tra- the Enlightenment sort of tradition which he comes from. Ricardo, Smith, Keynes, Marx, Rosa Luxemburg. I think it's quite helpful to look at them in that sort of context, the history of ideas, um, as opposed to this person had unique insights. It goes back to what I was saying with regards to Thales and Althusser's quote, you know, discovering a new continent. I think that's very helpful. You know, he 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 did get a lot wrong. And you go back to Marx, and you know, I sort of read Marx, and I think, Christ, this is a lot of it is wordplay, right? The whole dialectics thing, a lot of of course. But then sometimes there'll be uh, there'll be something which he talks about, which just like just grabs you. And Christ, Ash, he was writing this stuff what 170 years ago, like it's a long time ago. You know, he's talking about automation. He's talking about the capacity of capitalism to dissolve, like community relations and things. This is stuff that even now politicians don't understand. That, um, the bourgeoisie takes the greatest of pleasures in seducing one another's wives. And I was like, yeah, they do. Yes. They do be cheating. Yes. Yes. Uh, or, you know, what was that quote about uh, English Tories? Would be, you know, they basically sell everything. Yeah. Including like, apparently these, like these venerated traditions they really care about. It was a great Sentimental story. about nothing more than ground rent. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there you go. You've read more marks than me. There was this I great, can remember more, but that's different. <laughs> there was this great story the, the other day in the FT 
about the BBC, it was selling um, it's selling a studio to a French insurer, and then they're going to lease it back. You know, and, and little old me, I when I hear that story, I think of the Dean Court, Bournemouth. You know, uh, sell and then lease back Dean Court now the Vitality. Very bad deal for Bournemouth, so I'm worried about the BBC. Anyway, um, I just thought, isn't it interesting? You know, the Tories love to put a union flag on everything, but actually, actually, they're very happy for the the public service broadcast to be selling a major asset to a French insurance company because they just care about ground rent. Actually, Ash, it reminds me of um, another passage in the Bible, which is infinitely more progressive than pretty much anything you hear from politicians these days. Can I read it out to you? Hit me. This is from Matthew. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. What he's saying is, how you treat the most vulnerable people in society is how you're treating God. And you'll be judged for that. So if you don't tend to the welfare of the most vulnerable, poorest, downtrodden people, you ain't living a righteous life. And it really does bring home the extent to which we've departed from that kind of message. And I'm not saying the whole Bible's not like that. Of course it's not. But he said, go and see people in prison because you should treat them as you would treat your creator or, or the son of God. Who says that? Or, or, or clothe people. Who, who says that today? Even like socialist politicians. Who says that? Like an incredibly powerful message. Um, and it, it's puzzling for me, actually. You know, We have so many people on the right in this country who claim to be Christians. Do they behave like that? You know? And I think there's a political use there to actually bring up that inconsistency. There are Christians who are like, close the borders, uh, don't let anybody in, you know, um, send everyone to prison. It's like, have you read the Bible? Have you read the Bible? I don't think you have. So, um, yeah, that doesn't mean the left, that can the left, you know, take back religion from the right. I'm not suggesting that. I mean, maybe them just reading the book of Matthew, it's not long, try, you know, that would be a start. Okay, what? about women i accept that the characterization of the abrahamic religions as being really really anti-women is also kind of ahistorical right what the quran does kind of for the first time is establish a legal standing for women in disputes 
didn't really exist before Quran does it. Um, you know, there are uh, rules about the mistreatment of your wives, about the honoring of your mother. All of these things were about improving the status of women from where they were 1,500 to 2,000 years ago. So I'm not saying that in the Abrahamic texts themselves that they're anti-women. Actually, if you look at it historically, they're pretty good for the time. Mm. However, I think that it's undeniable that the prevalent message that you get about female sexuality mm. is based on sin, shame, and control. Mm. Again, caveats in Islam, the modesty for a woman is supposed to be matched by the restraint of a man yeah. to lower his gaze, to exert kind of, you know, sexual continence, if you want to call it that. But again, it, it says that, you know, sexuality is dangerous, dirty, sinful, unless it occurs within these very narrow sanctioned boundaries. And that being a model for thinking about female sexuality has been a justification for all kinds of gender-based violence, for, you know, social norms which are based on slut shaming for rape apologia and i think has also done an awful lot of psychological damage for women who are raised in these environments who are receiving messages about themselves their bodies their sexuality which says this is dirty and wrong and needs to be thoroughly repressed and stamped out and i suppose if i had to make a clear call on this and I say this is someone who identifies as Muslim and I do have a sense of private faith that conditions for women are better in more secular societies particularly when it comes to issues of sexuality again it's possibly too soon to say I mean right now the evidence would indicate that you're right um, what's really interesting is if you ask somebody um, what's the quickest way to become happy What's the number one, you know, how can I become happy? I've talked about this to a few, few sort of, you know, people in that field, academics and whatnot. They said, well, the number one thing is to become religious because we know that self-reported happiness is, you know, it's a major um, sort of cofactor of, of happiness. So that's one thing. So the idea that people who are religious are less happy, the, the, the evidence doesn't appear to back that up. Now, by gender or whatnot, you know, I don't know, but that's just one thing. And I think lots of people struggle to understand that, for instance, Many women that wear the hijab like wearing a hijab. They want to wear a hijab. Not all of them. You know, I'm, look, my dad's Iranian. In Iran, women have to wear uh, a headscarf in public. I'm not suggesting that's appropriate. It's obviously outrageous. Somebody, male or female, should be able to wear what they like. But there are many people who voluntarily wear these things um, and take great pride in it. In terms of the misogyny angle, you know, again, it goes back to the point of what you were saying. I feel like with, particularly with the monotheistic faiths, we basically extrapolate perennial human flaws um, and we just sort of blame a religious text. So I think, I think, I think you know, misogyny is clearly, is clearly inbuilt into human civilization in a particular way, probably since agriculture, probably since we moved away from hunter-gatherer society in terms of what it does to the division of labor, um, social reproduction, and so on and so forth. And this stuff is a reflection of that, right? 
I don't think it starts with this stuff. I don't think we've got um, uh, misogynistic societies or inherited social values because of the Bible or the Quran. I think it's much older than that. Now, I suppose the point is, if these are sort of hand guides for how you want to live your life, as I seem to be talking about, when it, conveniently, just when it comes to <laughs> economics and the rich, but not the other stuff, um, then I think we're having an interesting conversation. I, I do think it's too soon to tell. You know, uh, it is in the Communist Manifesto, this idea of, um, you know, all that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned, uh, all the fi fixed relations and attachments come apart. And that's basically talking about the process of capitalism, what it does, not just to tradition, but ev everything. Look on a high street, look on the, you know, the road you live on, and this is what's so great about capital. It talks about the metaphysics of capitalist society, why things happen, when they happen, where they happen, how they happen, what's driving it, capital, returns and investment, profit, money becomes a commodity and becomes money. Somebody's trying to make money, capital. And I... I feel that, you know, once that is applied to human sexuality, human affairs, I mean, it's going to have a very corrosive impact on people's lives. And if you'd asked me this question 10 years ago, I'd have said, clearly, clearly secular society is much better, clearly. But I look at things like dating apps and whatnot, and I think actually the direction we're going in terms of what, how we value one another, I don't think, I don't think Tinder's like the end of the world, but I, I think we're clearly going in a direction how, where how we value one another is actually not very nice. Okay, I agree like, with I'll you. I'll say quickly, you know, I'll see somebody on social media, there'll be like a woman, and it's not just women, it's men, men are more toxic, but a woman will say, I want a man who's six foot four, earns more than half a million pound a year, is this, 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 and this. And then the person will say, but you're, you know, quantitatively, you're literally talking about 0.01% of the population. I mean, maybe, but it's highly unusual. And I, I feel like, you know, how, how people look at other people in this particular conversation we're having in the context of sexual relations is it seems to me getting worse so i agree with you all right i am you know if i could have my magic room 101 get rid of anything i would say the dating apps all right because i think that they're profoundly unerotic right i don't think it's actually that good for for explorative sexual connections i think it applies the horrible ruthlessness of market relations to sexual relations and i think that that's awful but that doesn't get away from the central role that shame has played in conditioning female sexuality throughout history so the idea that sexual pleasure for women is deviant the idea that for men as well for men as well, but less so. No, no, no. Sexual pleasure is clearly frowned upon by all the faiths, clearly. Right. Like, I think that the logic of shame plays a different role. I'm not saying that men's sexuality isn't um, subject to like coercion, subject to constraint, um, that religious edicts governing sexuality don't negatively impact men. I think they do. But I think the central role of shame shame for women in experiencing sexual pleasure and the centrality of it, how it leaked out from religion and also in the 19th century shaped scientific assumptions about female sexuality, I think is undeniable that women have had to carry the lion's share of the shame burden. I think this is quite myopic in so much as, you know, before Christianity in Europe, certainly you have polygamy. So you have one man, might have many wives. You still have that in some you know, Christian churches. Uh, but I... I, I the idea of one man, one woman in a union, treated equally, looking after one another, compared to what precedes it in pagan Europe, strikes me as more progressive. Now, we're talking in the 21st century, of course, but this idea that that is somehow the root of misogyny, when actually that's something far older, 
I sort of question. I sort of question. And of course, religion plays such a role in our societies today that we're saying, well, does it play an active role in reproducing those things? Of course it does. But it's not the cause of them. It's not the cause of them. It didn't start with them. Um, and I think actually to some extent they mitigated probably what, what passed before. I think that... Look at the, how, look, by the way, look about how the Greeks talk about women. You know, if you want to talk about I the mean, role no, of women... I mean, if we want to talk about how the Greeks talked about women, they were just like, ugh, these are deformed men. Disgusting. Yeah, so, but Shame that, we have to reproduce with them, It's an argument against democracy, right? Because, you know, the idea of a self-governing city-state, which is obviously just male citizens, but that's an inheritance culturally from from Greek Greek history, Greek tradition. Does that mean, therefore, that, you know, all that tradition has nothing to offer us? I mean, I... The benefit of received wisdoms that come from the non-religious world is that they're open to contestation yeah. and you can say we can change this. Yeah. The problem with received wisdoms and also the great beauty of received wisdoms that come from the world of religion and draw their authority from the divine is that they're not meant to change. And when we're talking about the inherent value of human life, when we're talking about um, the moral obligations that we have to one another when we're talking about, you know, treating the least amongst human society as though they are God themselves. These are very, very good things. But then when we're talking about, well, what is the nature of sexuality, right? Is it sinful? Is it sinful to want to have sex outside of monogamous marriage. If we're talking about women's bodies and we're talking about it solely through the lens of temptation, tempting men, if they're coming from secular sources, you can go, well, we can change that. This comes from the world of the temporal. We can change it. The problem is that when people are saying this comes from a divine authority, is that what they're saying is this can't be changed. You know, it has changed, hasn't it? I mean, that's the society we live in, it has changed. So it's clearly shown itself amenable to certain sort of political ideological flexibility. And, and the church has changed, you know, throughout history. So the idea that these things can't change. I mean, sexuality as well, I just, I, I, you know, again, I think, I, I genuinely think in hundreds of years time, people will look at our society's obsession with sexuality and think, it's really important. You know, I enjoy it. But like, is it like the central thing of our culture? I, th I think- Do you think, do you think that the Catholic church will be forced to accept same-sex marriage one day? Well, you know, you already have, um, you already have with Pope Francis, you know, he's giving blessings to gay couples. Mm -hmm. And of course this is being misreported. I mean, if only this is being, or individuals within a couple, mm -hmm. um, uh, or he's saying that the Catholic church can give blessings to individuals in a gay couple. And of course these sort of conservatives, these rabid conservatives in the United States saying, he's blessing gay couples, he's blessing gay marriage. Which is not which is not what the Catholic Church is 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 saying. Um, like I say, if only. Uh, do I think they'll have to accept same sex marriage? I mean, I, I I think so. I mean, the argument as well as I've always bought this from the conservatives is that marriage is a conservative institution. Why wouldn't you want to recognise it? So I look. I don't know how the Catholic Church overcomes that because of course it's in what Deuteronomy: man shall not lay with man. Maybe they'll look at the Aramaic and the Greek and they say, "Oh, sorry, boo boo, we made a mistake. Actually, it's fine." Mistranslation, a lot of it is. Uh, Jesus doesn't actually mention same-sex well, relations no, not, once. Very important that that's not, yeah, all the stuff, well, nearly all the stuff you're talking about is not in the gospel. This is hugely important. Um, and if you just want to sort of live your life by something, I'd, I'd recommend Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is lots of bad stuff in the Old Testament. Uh, although, you know, important, it's important to say that, you know, Jesus says, I live by the old prophets. He's not rejecting anything they say, but it's also not explicitly repeated in, in the gospel. Uh, the, the point about sexuality I find interesting because I, I do think as well for like for other cultures, our obsession with this is 
it's strange. I do think for certain Muslim, I think for Muslim society, if you if you try to explain to my Iranian grandparents, like our society's obsession with sexuality, they'd be like, is it that big a deal? You know. But and then you'd be like, well, you're actually repressed and you don't really understand. But then I think, you know, maybe we should have a bit more humility here. Maybe. Maybe we should have a bit more humility here. Maybe people will look at us in a hundred years' time the way we look at them. I look at, for instance, what pornography is doing to young people, to young men. It really worries me, Ash. Um, and I think, and that's not about like, oh, you know, I'm becoming conservative, you know, you're censorious. I don't think a young child should be exposed to hardcore pornography. No, I think it's a really dangerous thing. But but here's what here's what I think about it. And for me, we're veering away from religion and we're talking much more about things that we value. Well, no, because there are religious imperatives, which I, I don't agree with many of the religious imperatives, but they would say it's to ward against the worst possible excesses, which lead to this. But I would say that pornography is to sex what McDonald's is to food. I entirely agree. And that... Everyone's eating McDonald's, Ash. It's, and that it's poisoning the well. Mm of human sexuality. I think it is, and it's because it's governed by the laws of the market. I think that it's a a kind of crude amplification of some of the worst aspects of how men and women relate to each other. Of course, I'm talking about sexual pornography here. Um, I think that the way in which it classifies people in terms of physical attributes is a really horrible amplification of like the ways in which we've taxonomized one another as human beings. I think that pornography is like this... Um, distorted funhouse mirror, which takes some of the worst excesses of society and just kind of stretches them out and sort of blows them up to, to a grotesque size. But that's different from talking about sexuality as sinful to me, right? Thinking about pornography and the damage that can do to human sexuality is different from thinking about sexuality the as inherently sinful. The it's the, completely no, the different. Edict, the edict exists, they would say, and this is what people do when they try and make an argument, they would point to the most dramatic instance of something going wrong. Well, if we don't have these edicts, then we end up in this world where, every, and of course, not everybody's on Tinder, not everybody's looking at like Pornhub 24-7, right? You know, but that some be, people but, are some time. But if you but if you make the if you accept that porn is to sex what McDonald's is to food, you wouldn't say, well, we have to have these edicts against carrots, broccoli, and chicken breast because what if what if well, if we, we destigmatize food, everyone's just going to be eating Big Macs until they die? We encourage healthy eating. Yeah, so healthy sexuality. No, I agree, but I agree. But I'm not, look, I had sex outside of marriage. I'm not suggesting otherwise. What I'm saying is this. This obsession with sexuality is like this. By the way, I think it's an outgrowth of the fact that we've just had it quite easy, right? In in the, after the midpoint of the twentieth century, no plagues, no wars, rising living standards. We had a plague. We did have a plague, but I think you know it's 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 hard to be sort of like obsessed with sexuality, like if you live through the Great Depression and the First World War and flu, like the, the global Spanish flu uh, pandemic. Then people just like want to survive and not die and maybe look after the people that they love and maybe have a laugh and meet some interesting people. You know, so I, I actually think that the obsession with sexuality is an outgrowth of like the end of history and the great affluence, which by the way, we're coming to the end of, when I say we're coming to the end of, it's probably going to like 10, 20, 30 years, but like it is a very distinct like snapshot of history. Um, uh, and that's not obviously sex matters. It matters so much. Everyone does it. Everybody who's watching this is a, you know, is a, is a sexual being. Is a, well, I was going to say they're consequence for sexual act and a way like, like, you know, clearly, like it makes the world go round. I'm not suggesting otherwise, but um, like this, 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 this 
central role it plays in our culture is quite unique, quite new. You know, it's what it, it's historically been one very important thing amongst a bunch of many. Very I see. And so where where I differ from you is that I think that sexuality has been the key locus of female subjugation and control and that's precisely why it's such an important area to interrogate now i'm not saying that the pursuit of sexual pleasure is all there is to life i don't believe that but it's looking at the way in which the messages that we receive as women from before we are women right when we are still little ungendered toddlers running around like to all intents and purposes don't have a fucking gender when you're two years old and the messages that you receive about sexuality as a young girl and what that teaches you about your body and how you relate to other people i think is incredibly central yes the idea that if you have the most um i guess fulfilling sexual life that's all you need to self-actualize as a human being i would agree i think it is a product of this great affluence it's it's a, it's a way of of opting out of of human society by kind of religiously focusing on one narrow part of human interaction but i think that it is so central to the condition of women in terms of sexual autonomy sexual shame the ways in which we're trained to think about ourselves I accept a lot of what you're saying. Let me return with with what I know about men. So the men that I know who had lots of sex, lots of sexual partners, it really damaged them. It really damaged them. Actually, when I say lots, I mean lots, like hundred plus. It really, really damaged them, and it 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 did something to their psyche. So there's probably like a diminishing returns of like the optimal number of sexual partners. Let's be stupid about it, right? Like 35 or something. And But the further you go beyond that, actually, for some people, it's, I'm not saying for everybody, everybody's different. But for some people, it's quite damaging. I know that just by talking to them, it's, it left them with a certain sense of spiritual emptiness. So this idea of, I don't think we necessarily disagree, has sexuality been like a primary means of controlling women's behavior and controlling and mediating social reproduction? Yes. Is the pursuit of sexual pleasure, if taken to an extreme, a problem for the person doing it? I think probably. And that's and that is like and that is part of, you know, religious prohibition say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Um, and a, a religious conservative, I'm not that, could say, well, you know, I told you so. You've had 250 sexual partners and now you're like really miserable, you know, and you you have an addiction, you have an addiction problem. I told you so. So I, I, I think that the the idea of the prohibition to not do something, and look, this, we need Richard Seymour here now. We're talking <laughs> about psychoanalysis. You know, humans um, humans have a very interesting relationship to prohibition, and sometimes actually it makes things more fun. So, um, and I'm you know I'm not saying reintroduce prohibition so people can break them. Quite Marxian, strange position that would be. Uh, but th- there's something there's something to the argument that the pursuit of sexual pleasure above everything else and seeing it as the kind of summum bonum of human life i think that's i think actually that that undermines how remarkable and unique humans are so if i agree with you with all that here's where i will very quickly disagree with you before we move on you talked about you know if a man has you know 100 250 sexual partners is something that's psychologically damaging there and i think that it is psychologically damaging to have a norm of social interactions of any kind premised on the disposability of other people. Exactly. Right? I think that's damaging. Exactly. But you know what the wrong number of sexual partners is for a woman? Any. Right? Any. You can pick any number and you will find a message attached to it which is profoundly negative 
for women and profoundly shaming, profoundly stigmatizing, profoundly pathologizing. And I think that that is a difference between how men and women receive messages about sexuality in society. Is, this is a conversation about misogyny. Like there are lots of, mis and it's getting worse. This is getting worse, right? So it's good we're talking about it. Um, the misogyny I see now is just absolutely extraordinary. Talking about body count, who gives a shit? What are you talking about? It's mo it should, we should say, it's mostly children doing this stuff, right? Mm. Like young men, like morons, right? I was a moron. I was a moron. Um, although, I, my God, I was I was never this disres disrespectful for the other, to other people. Um, but what I would say is, Ash, like a lot of those guys aren't religious, you know? Like th those people are looking at women as disposable. I mean, I don't know, but I, I just think that's a pervasive part of our culture, which is clearly getting worse um, and, and comes from something far deeper. And it is what that does really worry me. And I think it goes hand in hand, actually, with the, with the, with the rise of pornography um, as this sort of porn's been around for ages. When I was a kid, you'd get the magazine from the top shelf. I'm not saying don't do it, but this ability to access it anytime, any place as a child. Clearly, I think that's a problem and as a society, we should be thinking about whether or not we want that. So my final question is a very simple one. Do you think the world would be a better place without religion? Um, I don't think the world can exist without religion. I think it clearly meets a fundamental human need. Um, and so for as long as humans exist, I think faiths will exist. Um, I hope the human species lasts a very long time. I'm sure they'll change in all manner of ways, but there will clearly be new faiths. And this is actually happening in the world of technology. You look at AI, the singularity. This is clearly a messianic impulse. By the way, I think there will be machines capable of doing most jobs human can do at some point, probably in my daughter's life. Uh, but uh, this idea that somehow, you know, there'll be this rapture, this moment where we give rise to a conscious bigger than ourselves, I think that, that seems to me a secularized religion. We don't even know what consciousness is. So how can you even have that conversation? Um, so I, I think, I think and I, I, that, that sort of underscores my point, which is this stuff is an expression of a fundamental human impulse and need. So I don't think it's possible. I think the world needs belief in order to be a good place. We need to be animated by things that we can't see in the here and now in order to strive towards something better. Whether that belief has to take the form of religion, a belief in the divine, religious institutions, which I think have... Um, imposed untold harm on human societies as well as being responsible for some of the most beautiful pieces of art, music, philosophy. I don't know. And I guess this is one area where I'm deeply ag agnostic. Would the world be a better place without religion? No idea. I think, you know, look, we can talk about the Enlightenment. It's the exact, exact same argument. You know, Theodore Adorno says that, you know, Auschwitz starts with the Enlightenment. Um, and I think most people say, well, the Enlightenment's a good thing, isn't it? So I think, you know, you can make those kinds of arguments for lots of people. This brings to mind a conversation I had with Carlo Rovelli, very clever man, physicist, who doesn't believe in God. But clearly the manner in which he talks about the universe and the awe and the reverence he has for it, he clearly believes in a sense. I think I said this to him, you, you clearly have a sense of the divine. He said, well, of course I do. How could you not? And it goes back to Einstein's, you know, um, statement. Fundamentally, you have two ways of looking at the world. You can look at everything as a miracle or everything as a mistake. And I think that is a that's an important binary. And I think, look, if you look at everything as a miracle, it doesn't mean you necessarily necessarily sort of believe in organized religion. But I, I, I think it's an important disposition to the world. Uh, and I do think, look, let's let's invert this conversation. We've been talking about religion. Let's talk about hardcore atheism um, as this kind of secular faith. I think that's possibly the most toxic, dangerous way you can look at humanity because it gives rise to a certain kind of certainty, which I think is um, is is deeply destructive. And if we want to talk about the 20th century, like the most dangerous people in the last century were 
were not religious. You know, they were um, they were actually in large part a, a response to religion and opposition to religion. So I think, you know, secular atheism can be incredibly dangerous. That doesn't mean, by the way, everybody who's secular or an atheist is Joseph Stalin or Hitler. I mean, that would be stupid. Although that's the kind of argument, you know, that um, Mr. Dawkins would make about somebody who believes in God. Oh, yeah. You know, Richard Dawkins is like, oh, a Muslim, are you? Name your favorite terrorist. And like, Wait, what? Where did this come from? The flying horse. Do you believe in the flying horse? What is going on? Like, why are you haranguing me? Um, but Aaron, it has been a pleasure. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. And look, maybe the flying horse exists. <laughs> Can you falsify it, Richard? He's just trying to get a bit of clout. But this was really fun, Ash. Uh, and I think probably people watching this, probably they might be surprised at some of my my views, but I, I really think you can have a materialist conception of of society and history and also think there's something bigger than us. And I do hope that if there's one thing people take from today's discussion, that they'll read a little bit of Matthew and a well, little bit of Marx. Matthew and Marx and the Epistle of John. It's only four pages. Very good. <laughs> Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.